Welcome to Poetry Spotlight, presented by the Ohio Poetry Association. I am your host, Jeremy Dusek, and with us today is Haley Mitchell-Hogan. Haley holds a PhD in 20th century American literature from Ohio University and an MFA in poetry from the University of Washington. She is currently professor of English at Ohio University Southern, where she teaches courses in composition, American literature, and creative writing. Her chapbook, What the Grim Girl Looks Forward to, appears from Finishing Line Press, and poems have appeared or are forthcoming in Rattle, Slant, Spillway, Chiron Review, Verse Virtual, and many others. Light and Shadow, Shadow and Light from Main Street Rag Publishing Company is her first full-length collection. She edits Sheila Na Gig Online and Sheila Na Gig Editions. Haley, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Jeremy. I'm excited to be here. All right. Hey, would you like to start us with a poem? Yes, I will. And uh, this is one that you've, you've mentioned before. So I'm going to start with a poem from my um, forthcoming collection called The Blue Wife Poems. And this one is called Blue Wife Discovers the Symptomless. Blue Wife Discovers the Symptomless in her new issue of Home and Garden. What's the difference, she reads, between a bad case of the blues and depression. Take the quiz, what sounds familiar? Do you feel like you're failing as a wife, a mother? Like even the dogs go unnoticed for days? Are you convinced that you are an imposter? That your students know you are faking it? That you can't hide anxiety behind a smile? Do you visit your friends and fidget in their comfortable armchairs? Do you attend conferences only to sneak off to Bob Evans to eat an omelet on your own? This condition, this loss of pleasure is known as anhedonia. It is cause for concern. Does your husband say, are you sleeping again? Do you have trouble with waking in the night, wondering if you've left the garage open, if you paid the long guy, if your mother too is awake at this late hour, worrying, worrying, worrying? Did you join Weight Watchers and eat that quarter pounder anyway? Did you count the points for the half bag of Oreos? How many times did you reread that line in that poem? How many words float daily out the open door? How did you miscalculate your son's tuition? And are you irritable and angry? Do you curse when you burn the dinner? Do you honk the horn? Do you throw things? Are you impatient with grocery clerks and automatic banking? Do your kids ask, why are you screaming? Are you still enraged at the uncle who molested you 40 years ago? Do you fume over the family who allowed their shame to shield him? When the looming semi-truck speeds towards you on industrial parkway, do you imagine yourself swerving into the no-pass zone? When the Ohio River is running high and fast, do you picture yourself swirling among its debris? How did you score? Seek a counselor, a psychiatrist. Be sure to share this list of symptoms if they sound familiar. If you think you might be suffering from depression, if you are a woman. If you are a woman. Um, I, I, I do. I really like that poem. Um, and I think it's a good example of how you constantly experiment with structure and patterns. It's that poem, I think, has a self-imposed structure. You've got all these questions that you ask all the way through. But you also do, you also do like 
poetic form. You you did a sestina called Inspiration that that I found, and um, so I wanted to ask you what what aspects of structure do you find intriguing, and what do you think structure does for a poem, whether that's formal or informal structure? Yeah, thanks. So in my book, I am drawn a lot to listing, and and so that that structure has come out kind of naturally from some of the, the poems. Um, and some of the other um, forms that I'm using, I've really only started embracing in the last few years. Um, you'll see some pantoums and sonnets and uh, sestinas. Uh, the pantoum especially is a form that I struggled with myself as a student. But when I started teaching them to students, I found I started seeing them more possibilities for those forms in my own work. So I never sit down and think, I'm gonna write a sonnet today, or I'm gonna write a sestina. It's always the poem, the poems themselves will suggest those forms to me. Sometimes I'll think of a poem and I'll be like, oh darn, it wants to be a sestina. You know, now I gotta write a sestina. So I really feel pushed by the, the, the content of the, of the poem um, as well. So like with narrative poems, I might write a sestina because the form helps me rein in the content. So I just don't go way overboard with the story, for example. And the pantoums that I write tend to be about um, cyclical topics, topics that you know suggest cycles and repetition that, that's already inherent in our lives. So um, I really tie form and content together and never really wake up wanting to write a sonnet. Okay. Yeah. And, and like even, even inspiration as a Sestina, you, you took, it has the two lines that repeat, you know, in each, each mm -hmm. of the, the subsequent stanzas. So is that cyclical part important then? Yeah, that one is actually a pantoum. When you repeat the, the, um, the first and third lines become the second and fourth lines of each, each line. Okay. Uh, All right. Cool. <laughs> but, so yeah. So that one is that um, I'm talking about cycles in nature in that one, and cycles. Um, the poem is very much about um, art and how um, poetry inspires photographs, and photographs inspire poetry, and art inspires music. Um, it, it's all about those kind of cycles and weavings that that go on. So that one I thought was a great um, opportunity for that kind of form. Oh, that's cool. I'm glad you told me that because I had written down, look up a pantoum later because I didn't know what it was. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> I had already read one. I didn't realize it. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> so since we're talking about the blue wife, you have this recurring character. Mm -hmm. It's the blue wife. She's sad. Uh, so where did she, so where did she come from? Is she, because she appears in these different poems and she's doing things and, and they're not always passive, but she does have She's a lot of internal ang angst and anger and and missed opportunity, I think. And then, but the outside world is just crapping on her too. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering, is this like a cat? Is she a catch-all for underappreciated and like undersupported depressed housewives? Is it like a? Did, does she have? But but or does she ever have a name? Like is she a specific character coming from a specific place? Yeah, good. I I, I like that question and and thinking about that question for today really made me think of the book more deeply, you know, than when you're writing it, you don't really think of what's that blurb you might write, you know, about the book. And I always make my authors do that for their own books. So this, this made me do that. But um, Blue Wife for sure is me, but she's also a construction, right? She's also a persona of me. 
Um, so I don't give her a name in, in, the, in the book. I don't use I, even though the um, poems are confessional, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, they're still coming through that blue wife persona. And her experiences are mine um, for sure. But definitely in writing the poems, um, I, I did hope that she would speak to others and for others who are living with depression. Um, so I'm hoping that the poems express that daily, um, you know, living experience of living with it, um, depression, that daily life, that being feel like you're being crapped on life, <laughs> like, like you said. Um, I do worry that some readers might read the book and, and just think, well, just do the damn dishes already, right? <laughs> and, uh, you know, because so, I, I do have some recurring themes and images and, and that rely around those kind of everyday grind kind of things. Yeah. And I think Blue Wife's situation and her complaint is less a complaint against that green daily grind and more of just like a peek into how heavily that daily grind can weigh on someone with depression. Um, and that just general unhappiness, how it just weighs everything down. And then the poems also explore a history of childhood trauma and those lasting effects of sexual abuse. And um, it took me a long time emotionally to like write those poems, but I, I do think that they're important for the collection as well. And they're definitely essential to that blue wife persona too. And um, I think it's a story that a lot of women with depression, um, you know, have in their background as, as well. Okay. There's a lot going on there. Yeah, yeah. And it's, I, I imagine, you know, knowing that this is semi-autobiographical now that that layer gives you some distance. So that way you don't have to self-insert and you don't have to be a hundred percent vulnerable. You can pick how vulnerable you're being. Yeah. That persona allows me that space for, for some exaggeration and also for some veiling, um, you know, because it is very, very autobiographical, you know, but, um, but yeah, going into that um, blue wife persona, you know, just reminds me as I'm writing, this isn't just your story, it's other people's well, as well, tell her story. Yeah, I think that comes through in the poems. I, like, I think that you can read it and be like, I've, I've been morbidly depressed and I know what it's like to, you know, you do like half a load of dishes. Like since we're using dishes as the example, you'll do like half a load of dishes. We don't have yeah. a dishwasher. So then you do that and you look at the rest. And you're like, I just can't. And then you just like, you go back and you sit down and you're like, oh, I was supposed to be making dinner, but I'm back on the couch. Like how'd that happen? Yeah, um, exactly. It's those little things. Sometimes that people don't, don't think about that just kind of pile up around you and put pressure on you. Yeah, yeah. Um, was, it, was it therapeutic writing this collection? It was definitely... Um, therapeutic you know it's a very small collection it's only maybe 30 pages or so of, of poems um you know but it took me you know almost four years to to write them and you know I did sit down and specifically write a, a collection and I also did a lot of research into um depression and um originally I had, had thought about a much larger book but um decided it, it wanted to be to be a chapbook so I did uh spend a lot of time reading about depression and writing notes. I visited the um, National Museum of Psychology in Akron and, and, you know, at the start of it all and, and just 
um, you know, really kind of immersed myself, um, you know, read a lot of books about big pharma, you know, there's a lot more that went on outside of these kind of 30 poems than you really see on, on the page. But, um, but that whole journey of reading and exploring, and, and that was very, um, you know, therapeutic as, as well. And um, trying the poems out in my poetry group, um, you know, working through PTSD issues with counseling, you know, there's a lot that went on um, by, beyond the scenes with this one. Okay. And I, you know, I know that part of mental illness is often, <laughs> sounds dumb, mental, like you're, you're going in circles, like you're thinking about the same things all day long and being able to break those cycles is part of what therapy is trying to do often. It does this, does that investigation into cyclical structure help does that come into play yeah you definitely see recurring themes and motifs throughout the book that suggest that that repetition of cycles and and the, the repetition of those feelings that's that I think is is definitely um in the book and and I don't think the book I think the book ends on a, a note of hope that I'll, I'll read that poem but um but it doesn't, there's no cure, right? At, at, at the end of the day, it's also just about learning how to um, kind of live with this stuff too. Yeah, of course. Okay. What, when does the book come out? Uh, in the fall. Okay. So September, October, November. I know it's in production right now, so it's, it's on its way. Excellent. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, so what, what's your earliest memory of poetry? So uh, this is fun to think about. So my earliest memory of poetry is in Mrs. McDonald's sixth grade classroom, writing Tonka haiku and limericks, and making a little packet that I illustrated for my mom. It was like a Mother's Day project or, or something. And, and Mrs. McDonald saying, oh, you have a way with words, right? So that was my first little, you know, praise, right, for, for writing something. Yeah. Um, but I didn't really start. And then I, you know, wrote those um, teenage angsty poems, right? In my diary, you know, lots of girls do that. But oh, everyone really does start. that. <laughs> 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 yeah. Um, and then I, I, when I went off to college, I, I thought I would be, this is undergrad, I thought I wanted to be a journalist and um, had a first journalism class and walked through and it's just a bank of typewriters right we're not this isn't even computers at this point typewriters I didn't know how to type and you know we had to write these stories like right off of our head or like under a deadline I said this is awful I don't want to do that but the same semester I took a poetry writing class with um, Charles Harper Webb this is at Cal State Long Beach in California and um and I was maybe three weeks into that class and I and I said to myself this is what I want to do I want to be him teaching poems in a, in a college setting and critiquing poems and writing poems so you know once I it didn't take me long I kind of figured that out and then um, that's when I really started writing nice very cool very cool it was fun. what point did you decide yes I'm a professional poet now I don't think I've, I've decided that yet. <laughs> what is that? You know, is that getting published? And yeah, very early on, you know, in my early 20s, you know, I, I was a professional poet, right? Is it winning big awards? Well, I haven't done that yet. And, you know, so, so what is, even is that? So I think we have to take out the word professional and just say, you know, when you decide 
you're a poet, right? When you think in poetry, when you write poetry, you know, even if you don't send it out for publication, right? You're still a poet if you're writing poetry. Yeah. Okay. Makes sense. Um, your, your writing, there's one last, one last aspect of your writing that I wanted to ask you about. And it's, it's the woman's perspective on day-to-day stuff. It's so strong. I think it's, 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 it, it gives me insight that I do not have. And I feel like I'm actively getting that insight as I'm reading your stuff. Um, so what role does that perspective play in your life, the feminist perspective? And, and given, the, you know, God help us, the recent Supreme Court ruling, that may, <laughs> that may contribute a lot more. But how does that affect your writing and how does it affect how you see things? Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a great question, too. And I, I definitely consider myself a feminist. But I'm a quiet activist, so I'm not the kind of person that you're going to see out there um, protesting anything, carrying a sign, hanging out in a big crowd. That's, that's not me. But I do vote, <laughs> obviously. Um, and while not kind of overtly so, I do think my poetry can be political, um, you know, from that women's per- perspective. And I think of it in the sense of you know, second wave feminism um, produced the phrase, the personal is political. Mm. And uh, I use that that phrase in in class sometimes too. So in the 60s and 70s, women's personal accounts of their oppression that they felt at home or the sexual harassment that they felt in the workplace, um, they brought all those issues to light through their personal stories, right? Whether fiction, poetry, essays, women were starting to talk about these personal experiences. And, you know, through that, they realized they weren't alone. And those collective voices started to push for change. And um, so I don't think my work is quite political, you know, on on that level. I don't have pro-choice poems, you know, for example. Um, but with the Blue Wife poems, I think the change I'm advocating for is, you know, just concerns about our cultural response to depression and the stigma that still surrounds mental illness. Uh, so if I'm political or if I'm a feminist in, in any way, it comes out that way, you know, through my poems. Um, just a little more subtle, right, than, than marching in the streets, but um, still trying to speak maybe forced for those voices that don't um, have that opportunity or that, um, I don't know, willingness or, you know, technical know-how to, to talk about things like that in poetry. Sure. With the it, Supreme Court stuff now, I haven't even processed that yet. Maybe that'll make its way into my poems, but um, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if it will. It's so big. I yeah. can't get my head around it. Yeah. And uh, the repercussions are still being felt. Yeah. Um, and will be for some time. Uh, <clears throat> so with like, you know, I'm just going to skip past that. Um, <laughs> let's talk about, let's talk about the, the press, Sheila Nagig. Where okay. did that start and how is it going? Okay. So yeah, I was just thinking about this, this the beginnings of Sheila Nagig last week, because I just wrote an introduction 
to a big anthology we're putting out, which is the first five years of Sheila Nagging online. And it's just selections from, from those five years and, and the contributors who most often con contributed. So, so that's coming out in the fall. And so I did write a little intro to that where I reflected on, on some of this. So I began Sheila Gig as a print press in um, 1990 with a friend of mine at Cal State Long Beach. And we had, knew nothing about anything. We were 20 year old, you know, <laughs> some, you know, English majors and just poets <laughs> and, we just thought it'd be fun. And um, so the short story of that is I ran that press for 10 years um, in, in through the 90s, um, kept it going while I was in my MFA program at University of Washington. And it wasn't until I moved to Ohio for the PhD program that I knew I kind of had to put it to bed. It was, it was just too much. This PhD program was just too scary to <laughs> still be doing that. And um, so it just kind of went quietly to bed and and so did my own writing my own poetry uh for about 15 years i put that on the back burner um because my phd was actually in american literature so um just a whole different frame of mind and critical writing and different kind of studies and uh during that time during the phd program i had two children went on to get a job had to get tenure you know so that's 15 years of just not writing writing poetry. And then um, from teaching a poetry class, you know, one of my students introduced me to Duotrope. And then I realized Submittable was out there. And the whole world of poetry had just changed in those 15 years while I wasn't doing anything. You know, it, the, it, it just blossomed. All the online journals and opportunities and that stigma of publishing online wasn't there anymore, right? It's just, mm -hmm. it's just as, um, um, valuable to be um, online that it is, you know, in, in print. So that all changed. And then I started in 2015, starting, um, I went back through all my MSA program poems and just pulled some collections together. And, and so my collections that have been published were really that old stuff that I just hadn't done a lot with. Mm. And then as I started sending my work out, finding editors, becoming friends out there, um, I just thought, well, why not? Why not bring Sheila Gig back? And so in 2015, you know, again, not knowing the first thing, how to run a website or anything like that, I decided to bring Sheila Gig back, Sheila Gig online, right? So just, um, you know, more current for the current times. And I put out calls for submissions, immediately got amazing work, and it just really um, started, um, it blossomed from there. And two years later, you know, I'm seeing all these contests for manuscripts online, and I'm thinking, why not do a manuscript contest? And again, I have no idea how to make a book these days, but um, Mark Swan was, was actually someone I had published in the 90s, and he found me again on um, Sheila and Gig Online. And I said, hey, Mark, do you have a manuscript? He said, yeah. I was like, will you be my guinea pig? He said, yeah. And that's how Sheila and Gig Editions was, was born. I had no intention of becoming a small press, and it just... Um, just kind of blossomed and it's been amazing and i can't imagine my life right now without all this shielding good stuff going on so it's doing well <laughs> good good well and you guys published the cardinal sings anthology which was carrie's big project over the last year um as so how did that go and how is it going 
Yeah, so for, for anyone who doesn't know, I, I don't think this, this is an issue in Ohio, but um, Carrie Gunter Seymour <laughs> is our, our Ohio um, Poet Laureate of, of the state. And she had an opportunity to create an anthology pro project that highlights the work of um, Ohio Appalachian writers. And so I was, um, having already had a relationship with Carrie through publishing one of her books and her Women Speak books, um, I was lucky to be selected as the publisher of, of this book. And, and the Cardinal Project has just been this amazing journey. So first, I was completely honored that um, Carrie would take a chance on a small press publisher because I'm still pretty dinky, <laughs> right? Um, for, pretty small. And this was a big project, but she had faith in, in me and, and went with it. And that really speaks to her um, just support of women and, um, you know, you know, small businesses and things, which, which is wonderful. And then I was also asked to uh, serve as one of the jurors for the collection as well. So um, I really had that kind of insight into the project from the ground up, which was a lot of fun too, to, um, from helping to select the work, to doing the layout portion of the production, um, to mailing out the 1,100 pounds of books that arrived via UPS and sat in my garage. So I got to see like all aspects of it. It was, it was really fun. So I sent out over uh, 700 books to Ohio libraries and over 400 books to Appalachian middle schools and high schools. And that was all part of the support that Carrie received from the Academy of American Poets and the Foundation for Appalachia. Um, so that made all that distribution possible. But that was something like I hadn't seen the likes of through my press, right? Here's a small press and all of a sudden I got 1,100 pounds of books in their garage. So, so that was, it was scary, but we, I did it. Um, and since then, we've also sold over 350 individual copies since March of um, 2022. And so that's just been a really great response as well. And we've been doing readings all over the state and those have just been phenomenal. Every reading has been different with different contributors um, coming to read their work. So each reading has had its own vibe and its own energy. Uh, and the venues have just been so welcoming and all the writers have been like super appreciative of, of this project. And, and so it's really, really been something amazing. So it's been an amazing journey. So I'm not sure I can top it and I'm not sure if I want to. <laughs> so it was, it was tough, but, uh, but great. <laughs> That's really cool. So how, how many books is 1100 pounds? Um, so that was, it was, yeah, it was like 1100 books. Yeah. About a pound yeah, a book. Yeah, they're hefty. They're thick books. Yeah, because we, and it may actually, I think that was 1400 books because it was what I sent out and then all the extras I, I bought to, to sell as well. So yeah, yeah, <laughs> it was fun. It was a little chaotic here for a while, but uh, it was good. How's the garage? Is it, is it clear it's now? It's fine now. It's back to normal now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so <laughs> what do you think that publishers look for in a submission? And, and more specifically, what do you look for when you're, when you're accepting work? Yeah, this is always a fun question. I, and I think your listeners, you know, always want to hear that, you know, what, what, is it? It, <laughs> <laughs> right? what, what is that magic little potion that I need to sprinkle on my poems? So I always tell my students that if they create well-written, honest poems, that there's a publisher out there for their work. 
right? Now, obviously, the goal that we all have, and, and I have this same goal as, as a writer as well, is finding that publisher, right? Finding the publishers that um, your work resonate with. And sometimes it feels like you're never going to find them. But then when you find that one, and you start reading all the poets who are in that one, and you start reading their bios, and you start sending to the same places they do, that's how I've always done it. And that's how you find those um, you know, journals that, that like that similar kind of sound, that similar kind of stuff you're writing. I don't think our own poems change that much. So if you just find that one who likes you, you can open the doors to finding so many others. And the problem is there's so many out there, right? So, so where do you start? Um, and, you know, just remember, you know, people get down from, you know, getting rejection sometimes, but each editor has her own bias right, for what makes a poem good or what makes it appropriate for their journal. And so you have to just go with that, you know, as, as well. So my guidelines at Sheila Gig Online say that I'm looking for poems with strong imagery and a strong sense of voice. Occasionally, I'll take a poem that's like all imagery. It might just be like a beautiful nature poem, just all image and there's no story. But for me, generally, I like that really strong sense of a persona behind the poem. Um, I don't want to just be told about an experience. I want to have that experience with the persona. I want to live it or relive it with that persona in the poem. And imagery can help me do that. And when I, when I talk about imagery, it's not just like sensory impressions and similes tossed in. Um, I always tell my students, don't dress up your poems like they're going on a date. Don't just throw that stuff in at the end, right? Oh, it needs a simile, you know, or I need a sensory impression. Yeah, I always, always tell them to watch out for that. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so for me, the, the imagery is essential for our understanding of the poem. If you could take out all the imagery and the poem still stands fine on its own, then the imagery is not doing its work. It's got to help us get to that meaning, help and help us trim out all the junk and you know get to that meaning more more quickly uh, and i'm always drawn to poems that kind of punch me in the gut right so uh, to me a sheila mcgee poem has that moment um where i just go arg or oh or wow that's so beautiful something that just uh you know it just hits me in in, in the stomach um so, and that's some insight you can't really express in a call for submissions, right? So obviously there's more going behind on behind the scenes when I say strong imagery and strong sense of voice, right? It's, it's this other stuff too, which I don't know it till I see it, right? It's hard to express. But if people are reading the journal, you know, I hope that that's what they're walking away from, you know, that that's, oh, it's that kind of poem, you know, that, that she wants. Okay. So hopefully that'll help you guys out there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's tough too. Cause when you're looking it, it all, like everybody says, well, I want the best poems and, you know, give me the best that you got, but that's not defined in any way. <laughs> and it's, it's hard because I'm getting so many poems now. I'm getting a lot more submissions and there's many amazing, great poems and many amazing quote, Sheila gave poems out there as well but um I, I find i've had to limit the size of the journal now um to about 40 people so some great poems aren't going to make it in and i, I think people think well you're you're 
this is an online journal, you have all the space you want. And they don't realize it's not just a cut and paste kind of thing that, you know, there's HTML process that goes on, you know, there, it's the laying out of the journal is not as, as easy as it may look on the page. It's, it's pretty time consuming. So, you know, even if I go to 45 or 50, right, that's a lot more, um, a lot more work. So I've had to make myself kind of be a little more ruthless in the um, past few issues. And, and, and even though I'm getting more and more submissions, I still have to, you know, try, try to do that. So um, readers, you know, writers need to, to remember that as, as well. You know, it's not, not, don't take it personally. And there's a lot of other things um, behind the scenes that are affecting um, our decisions on, on whether we can give that poem space or not. And that's probably good to hear because Ohio, especially, you know, people know your press. And so they'll be like, well, why didn't Haley take my poem? <laughs> what did I do wrong? <laughs> it's not about that at all. Not at all. And I do have, you know, people who uh, submit regularly and, uh, you know, people I publish all the time and, and but people, even people who I publish a lot, I'll have to say, no, not this time, you know, but, but keep, keep sending. So the doors are always open. I'm always happy to, to look and, and just can't always take everything. Sure. Um, now, you have a PhD and an MFA in poetry. And something that I've always really wanted to ask somebody that's, that has your credentials, do you think a PhD actually helps with writing poetry? Or do you think it's, it, it's retractive? Like, does it, is, is the clinical approach to English, does that make bad habits in a writer? So, so my, my PhD is actually in American literature, so, and, and the MFA is in poetry, so they, and I, they are very different beasts, right, um, so I, I did have different experiences in, in each one, like I said, I didn't write much poetry when I was in the PhD program, I was using just a different side of my brain <laughs> for that. Um, I went on for the MF, for the PhD because the MFA program didn't create job opportunities for me beyond adjunct work. So I, that was the mid nineties when I graduated with that. And it seemed like everybody I knew, every poet I knew had an MFA at the time. And to get a full-time job, you really had to have a book out, you know, by then. And I think today it might be two or three books. I mean, it's, it's just the more MFAs we, we graduate, the harder it is, the harder the field becomes. And it's the same with, you know, PhDs as well. I think that MFA programs get a bad rap sometimes for churning out cookie cutter poets. And I think that's a, a broad understanding of what MFA programs are. Um, and, and when you uh, had mentioned the term like clinical, right? You know, the, these kind of clinical um, poems or, or poets or whatever. And I think some poems, some programs might be like that. I'm sure there's, there's some out there, but I never felt that way at the University of Washington or where I did my MFA. I think that I had those two years, I honed my technical skills a little bit more. I was in my 20s, I was just a baby, right? So, you know, I honed my skills a little bit more, but I don't think my voice and my way of looking at things or the kinds of things I wrote about changed at all through that program. I never felt like I had to write to somebody else's ideal of, of poetry. And maybe I just got lucky and that I had a program that was like that and others, I'm sure, will say, no, it wasn't like that at all. Um, so I don't feel like my, my voice and style really changed a whole lot. I just got a little better, you know, skills 
out of it and two more years to write, right? Which was um, pretty great. So I don't think I picked up any bad habits, um, but I didn't solve any old ones either. So like, I'm a terrible reviser. Uh, I always have been and I always will be. So, you know, going through um, those PhDs, MFAs, they didn't make me better at, at that. Okay. All right. I hope, I hope that answers your, your, your question. I was also thinking in terms of, because I do think that, that it's possible for an MFA program to make, th- th- there, there's the possibility to have it, especially if the, the instructors are kind of molding, like if the lecturers are molding the students after their own writing styles, I think that's possible. That wasn't my experience either. And so thankfully it wasn't because my professors were great. Um, I was wondering about the PhD program, like does the PhD program instill a sense of discipline or a new perspective on the English canon where you're like, well, in order for this to be a poem or to be a good poem, it has to fit these conventional things. Or do you see that reflected in other people? Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't really come out of the PhD program thinking more or differently about poetry. And I think it's just because my own focus was elsewhere during that time. So even in my critical work, I wasn't writing about poetry. You know, I was um, writing mostly about um, essayists who wrote on disability and illness. That was my my critical um, kind of background in, in the program there. Um, I, I'm sure, however, that I'm sure I'm affected in my teaching, right, from the from the PhD program. So you do learn a kind of discipline of, of deadlines and, and, and things like that. And, and re, you know, reflecting on the canon, getting a sense of what the canon is, getting a sense of um, whether you want to support the canon or break outside of it, you know, in your own teaching, you know, that kind of thing. Um, um, I haven't really thought too much about how it's affecting how I read poetry or, or think about poetry in general. I, I think if my focus, if I'd stayed focused on poetry in my critical work, maybe I would have learned something, you know, a little differently, but uh, yeah, I just didn't go there. So. Okay. All right. That's interesting. Um, now you've written a ton about Stephen King <laughs> academically. I was so excited to learn this. You have a whole bunch of essays. That was like the bulk of your academic research. It, it seemed like, I don't know if that's true, um, but you've written a lot about a lot. Of, and, I, and I know this is a broad question, but what is your take on his writing and what place does because you wrote about this specifically like what place does his work have in our society yeah it just cracks me up that you found my Stephen King work which is is hysterical and um (laughs) I started writing writing on Stephen King after tenure but before full professor so I was able to use some of those um articles that I was writing you know towards full professor um and then before then, you know, my, my focus has always been on uh, disability and illness and trauma um, in American literature, um, primarily essays. And uh, I bring a disability studies and illness studies theory to um, some of that. I'm not a very theoretical thinker, <laughs> you know, I'm always, my, my essays always got a theory light. Um, and I'm a huge Stephen King fan, and, and so I'd written some essays about other people, Leonard Kriegel, Nancy Mayers, um, and then when I was, you know, reading some Stephen King work, and I was reading a book one summer just for fun, it was called Duma Key, 
and um, I think it's a lesser known Stephen King piece. And I, I found myself writing notes in the margin on Kindle. <laughs> you know, this is how nerdy I am that I write notes you know, on my beach reading. And uh, I realized, oh, I got an essay here. And then um, I pitched that essay to the popular, popular culture conference. There's this whole Stephen King um, group within that conference. And I pitched that essay for him, them, and they loved it. And then they were putting an anthology together, and they took that piece. And then a couple of years later, I wrote another piece, and they did another anthology. And then I was asked to do a, a separate thing on it. So yeah, I just kind of, I'm an accidental King scholar, but an avid King reader. So I think people might find it kind of weird that I write critical essays on Stephen King. But I, yeah, I'm a fan of of his work and I think writing essays should be fun, right? Write about something that you're interested in. And then the fact that I could still apply my critical interests of, of um, disability and illness, I, I you know, just made it all, all the most fun. So in short, I just think he's a fun storyteller. And I think his work, you know, also critiques our culture in lots of different ways. And he often has his, you know, pulse on the, you know, is some on the pulse of what's going on in, in our culture as well. And I think um, people who, who don't read the books, just watch the movies, don't get it. They don't get Stephen King's kind of um, influence and his um, depth and breadth, right, of, of what he talks about. But the constant reader, right, knows that his books are not as campy as his movies. Uh, and again, if you read him broadly, I think you'll find that, you know, he's got literary merit as, as well. Um, it's another kind of lesser known book called Rose Matter, for example. And it's about, um, at, its, at its core, it's about domestic violence, so you read it, and toxic masculinity, right? But it's told through the lens of the Minotaur and the Labyrinth myth. And it's like, you know, how liter more literary can you, can you get, right? It's got that whole literary structure to it. Um, so yeah, I just, I just think he's kind of fun. And then I bring my own, um, you know, the disability and area, um, illness studies theory to his, his text. So I've written on um, mental illness in Mr. Mercedes, not just the mental illness of the perpetrator in the story, but also one of the other key detective kind of characters. Um, I've written on the healing power of creativity in, in Duma Key. And then the, the last one I wrote was for an anthology on it. And I looked at Bill Denbro's stutter and tied that in with trauma and then the protective power of the imagination. And that imagination is something um, a number of King scholars have, have uh, written about. So people who just maybe read the novels, they might not realize there's a whole you know genre of King scholarship out there too. And it's pretty broad and it's, uh, it's pretty fun to read too. Yeah, so I'm a poet and accidental Stephen King scholar. <laughs> <laughs> accidental, now on purpose. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's fun. I don't know if, if I've written three pieces. I don't know if that, you know, if that qualifies me again, just like professional poet. Does that qualify me as a scholar of Stephen King? Maybe. I, I don't know, but. Um, I think, I think you need three pieces to be qualified as a scholar. So I think you're there. You made the cutoff. Yeah. <laughs> All I know is that it all counts for merit under my, uh, <laughs> you know, being a professor, so it, uh, it's fun. It's a fun way to get married. <laughs> Good. Um, I, I remember, so I cut myself off asking you a question earlier, but I do think it that that it's valid, and I, I want to ask it anyway. Um, so we were talking, we were talking about feminism, and 
you have, you know, a, a scholar, a more scholarly view of, you know, the role of, you know, impersonal. Uh, what do you think men can do to help in a way that is not, that is dignified and actually helpful? Um, that's a great question. And, and I think the answer that the Blue Wife poems gives to that question is listen. Okay. Listen. <laughs> that easy. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cool. I mean, broader culturally, yeah, I'm sure there's a whole list of things. <laughs> but if you're starting at home, <laughs> you know, you're starting with that every day, you know, the, the things closest to you, you know, just listen. Yeah. Well, and, and that makes sense. I mean, the, the poems, the poems that you sent me, they're, they're, there's a lot of stuff going on in the blue wife's life that is either unnoticed or under, un, not appreciated at all. Like it's, you know, taken for granted. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, and I think a lot of men and women, you know, feel, feel that way in, in different aspects of their lives. Sure. Sure. All right. Um, so what poets, what poets are you reading right now? Okay, so that, that's always that's always a you know that question that could yeah, come yeah, up. That's a <laughs> so as an editor, you would think that I would be constantly devouring books, but I often I just don't have time to sit down and just enjoy a book. And you know, if I'm if I'm reading something, it's because I'm editing it. I'm I'm it's in production stage, or you know, I'm being considered for for something. Um, yeah, so so I, I wish I could be devouring books all the time, but I'm not. But I've got Diane Seuss's Frank Sonnets have been sitting on my nightstand for over a year. And I'm completely intimidated by that book. And even more so now that she's won the Pulitzer, <laughs> right? So so that one I'm reading very slowly, you know, and thinking, okay, I'm not I'm not smart enough for this. I'm gonna close this and and this this breaks all the rules I know about sonnets. So I'm going to close this and come back tomorrow. You know, so so that was a bit of fun challenge. Um, I, I need to keep going back to that one. Um, but I, I'm looking forward to reading um, Sandra Fiend's Meat and Bone, and that one I did pick up at the Ohio Poetry Association conference a, a couple weeks ago. I did not know her work um, beforehand. And this is where I do buy most of my books is at these kind of conferences where, where I, I can see like a real person behind it and I can talk to them and get them to sign it. And um, so that's really fun to me. And then, you know, most of what I'm reading uh, submissions for the next Sheila and a gig online. And I have close to a hundred poetry chapbooks that I'm reading right now for the summer poetry contest. So that's, that's all keeping me pretty, pretty busy. So. Okay. So, you know, this one collection, some online stuff and then a hundred chapbooks. <laughs> <laughs> and I can't sit down and read a bunch at once. They take me a long time because I am the only judge on those and, and they take me a long time. And I, I, I try to look at each one very fairly. So I try not to read like 10 in a row because then I'm just in, I'm not in the right mode to, you know, um, be critical, you know, about them. So um, I just kind of take a couple a day and, you know, work through them. And, um, you know, they have a couple different piles in my head. Yes, no, maybe, you know, and, and kind of go from there. So it's, it's time consuming. Yeah. But, uh, but it's enjoyable because even if I can't give everyone a prize, I often, you know, find two or three other authors from these contests who I do go on and offer um, book contracts. Too, so. oh cool cool the process. yeah so we're the submitters <laughs> <laughs> um 
All right, would you like to wrap us up with a poem? Uh, yes, I will. So let me, I think I'm gonna do Blue Wife in the Kitchen. I don't know if this was one I sent you or not, but, um, but the kitchen comes in a lot in, the, uh, in my poems and I've lost it. I know that, I thought I had it up there and it kind of went away. All right, I can't find it, I don't know where it is. So I'm gonna read um, the final poem of the collection, um, which is a Festina since we were talking about forms. And I, I don't know if I sent you this one. Um, this is the last poem and it, it, I think there is that um, note of hope there at the end without being a note of, okay, everything's fixed now, <laughs> right? So um, that's what I was hoping for with this one. And it starts with a little um, quote, when asked what people need to be happy, Freud responded, love and work. What the hands know. The happiest people rely on their hands, digging deep into good moist earth, working the vegetable patch, the flower garden, moving through the seasons from seed to table. The pleasure is in the effort, its own purposeful reward, the intentional connection, a kind of healing. Think of the mother's touch that heals, the swaddled infant in nurturing hands, the acts of grooming, a child rewarded by the warm washcloth, the gentle work of untangling unruly hair, the pleasure of cool fingertips as a fever moves across the brow. Even patients who move through the asylums were heart healed by supporting their own sustenance, pleased by the abundant tasks for the restless hands, making shoes, repairing mattresses, working as tailors, seamstresses, broom makers, rewards reaped through constant motion, rewards displayed in handmade bird cages, canaries moving in every shop space, filling each full workday with song. The craftswoman too shapes healing through the steady exertion of her own hands over clay, over glass, over the unique pleasure of the fountain pen traversing the open, pleasant space of the empty line. I once ignored the rewards adored, afforded those I thought with clever, gifted hands. Didn't know I had only to keep mine moving, to forgo inertia for the doing, embrace the healing motivated by the body in action, working for its own peace of mind. Focused on the work of Afghan making, I embraced the new and pleasing repetition of fingers guiding wool. I healed my racing thoughts by painting canvases, reward, rewarded as each tiny numbered space became a thing, moved from idea to actuality with the help of my hand. And through this work, in these moments, I briefly healed myself. Pleased the sorrowful aspect of my being, felt rewarded, like moving toward freedom, unbinding um, one's own hands. Mm. Awesome. Cool. Okay. Well, thank you very much for sharing that. <laughs> thank you so much, Jeremy, for having me. It's been, been fun. It, 
this this was great. Thank you for being on. And uh, this has been Poetry Spotlight, a production of the Ohio Poetry Association. Please follow the OPA, and twi- the OPA on Twitter at Ohio Poetry and on Facebook at facebook.com slash Ohio Poetry. A transcript of this episode will be found on the OPA blog. Please visit ohiopoetryassociation.org for more information. And thank you again. Thank you.